0: What's up, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Inking Out Loud podcast. I'm your host, Rob Santos, and I'm joined, as I always am, by my co-host, Drew McCaffrey.
1: How's it going, everybody?
0: And today on Inking Out Loud, we reach an exciting milestone, of course, in our coverage of Gene Wolfe's Book of the New Sun. We are finishing now The Shadow of the Torturer. And it's it's been quite a ride thus far for me, and I have an absolute wall of new words to go through for today. But let's start off right away with our weekly recap, Drew. Would you do us the favor, please, of summarizing the ending of book one? Absolutely.
1: In our final episode of The Shadow of the Torturer, Severian and Dorcas stumble their way into the company of Dr. Talos and Baldanders. The good doctor immediately lassos them into joining his play, and after an engineered early ending, they settle down for the night. Severian has a dream, or maybe not a dream, of Tricycle and Master Malrubius, just as he did the night of his raising to journeymen. This time, Master Malrubius asks him about the modes of governance and which is the best, but Severian, in his confused and exhausted state, doesn't answer before they disappear. The next morning, Severian tells Dr. Talos that he and Dorcas must leave them to find the pelerines. As they're packing up, the stuttering man from the night before Agilus' execution comes up to them, introducing himself as Heather, and swearing to serve Severian. Despite Dr. Talos' misgivings, Heather tags along. As they approach the highway and Severian prepares to split off, a passerby named Jonas tells him that the Pelerines have already left the city, so Severian turns north with the rest of the company. As they leave through the gate, a disturbance occurs, and the book abruptly ends.
0: And you have the choice of continuing on or not, dear reader. <laughs> yeah. This was, uh, abrupt is the right word. Definitely. Especially considering I'm, you know, I bought, I think, uh, the compendium, I would call it. I got everything, um, of the book of the new sun, And so of course, of course, according to my copy, I'm only a fraction of the way through this file and, uh, yeah, it had just ended and it continues on with the claw of the conciliator. And I was like, oh no, I'm not continuing on with this. (laughs) This is in fact exactly where I'm ending. So yeah, book one's done. Let's head straight into style. I, I have very very small points. I imagine your points are larger, um, or at least will give us more to discuss. Uh, do you want to throw something at us right away to start uh, us off? Yeah,
1: I mean, let's start with the ending. Uh, the <laughs> fact that it just ends. It uh, just this ends. isn't. This is yeah. not structured like uh, the kind of, you know, three act structure or even five act structure that we see a lot in science fiction and fantasy books, especially modern day books. Uh, you know, this is about as far from a Brandon Sanderson structure as you get. Um, you know, there, there's really a tough conversation to have if you want to nail down where the climax of this book is. Uh, you can look at it in the sense of, oh, well, this is just part one of one book because it's titled The Book of the New Sun, not The mm-hmm. Books of the New Sun. And if you look at it in that way, you can maybe reconcile it a little bit more, but at the same time, uh, a slight spoiler for the very beginning of Claw of the Conciliator, that book picks up well after the events at the gate here. We don't get an answer. Like we don't get a continuation of that scene. We don't know what the disturbance at the gate was. All we know is, Severian got through it. And, and now he's like weeks or months down the road. And, and, you know, and so like, you can't even just say, oh, well, because of publishing restrictions or something, he had to chop the book up into different pieces. This is a deliberate choice that Gene Wolfe made to end the shadow of the torturer in the manner he does. And leave us with those words that you, you know, you brought up that, this is not an easy path. I don't blame you if you don't join me in continuing it. Mm. Uh, but at the same time, I think it it's appropriate. You know, this is a weird book. This is a weird world. A weird story. I think it fits to have the book end in a in an unorthodox manner.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, like like I think this plays a lot into the idea of this being an in-world text this is a recounting it tells us not what we're expecting this satisfying arc that's been constructed or this this narrative that we're expecting a, a resolution on some closure on like this this is Severian recounting to us what is important for for him to tell and so it's it actually I'm not gonna lie it is absolutely no surprise to me that it picks up later with the claw of the conciliator um, that, that that seems to fit along exactly with the theme of this book. You know, it, it 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 is not beholden to deliver us what we're expecting. And it's a lot more wild for that. It's a lot more, um, for me, it, it's more exciting. <clears throat> I'm not used to this. Um, I have a very ambivalent <laughs> feeling going into the next book because I, I literally have no idea what I'm walking into. But it, the, the fact that Gene Wolfe, Severian, however you choose to define it, Ended it here with these final two sentences, you know, here I pause if you wish to walk no further with me. Sorry farther with me reader. I cannot blame you. It is no easy road. It feels like a challenge. And maybe that's just because of the kind of reader I am. <laughs> but I still have to respect that it is a completely balls to the wall move. And I respect it. And I, I I, take that as a challenge. And I'm going into the next book. Of course, I'm going into the next book. You know, if not for those last two lines, if let's just set up the scenario that I had just picked this book up a few years ago, I didn't know Drew McCaffrey. I hadn't <laughs> had my mind expanded at that point, And I had just found Gene Wolfe. If I had ended this book here without those two lines, I probably would have ended it. But because Severian dares me in my interpretation, <laughs> he dares me to continue. I absolutely, because of those final two lines, I'm going to be jumping into the next book regardless. You know, even if I didn't have the podcast. So I think just, just trying to, to take that step back in that bit of introspection of my attitude as a reader, there's a lot to learn here from this guy.
1: Yeah, so I, I want to kind of rewind a little bit to something you mentioned there in, in terms of satisfying, ah. uh, this ending being satisfying, um, and how this is a
0: with expectation yeah. an
1: in-world written account, and Severian's not like, You know, this isn't being set up as Gene Wolfe is writing this book for us to be entertained by it. Mm -hmm. It is Severian wrote this book as an account of what's important in his life. Except, in these chapters, he has an aside just before he describes the dream with Master Malrubius. Oh? And he says... If I were writing this history to entertain or even to instruct, I would not digress here to discuss Master Malrubius, who must, at the moment when I thrust away the claw, have been dust for long years. But in a history, as in other things, there are necessities and necessities. I know little of literary style, but I have Mm -hmm. learned as I have progressed and find this art not so much different from my old one as might be thought. And he goes on this extended metaphor, comparing the... Uh, the exigencies of an execution and the demands upon the carnifex by all of these disparate groups. You know, there's the the law, there are the spectators, there's the authority uh, who's trying to like make money on this. There are the, uh, you know, the bloodthirsty people who need a, a particular kind of spectacle. And he compares those spectators to readers. And, In the context of this passage, the ending is even more fascinating because this is just a few pages after that Severian makes, if, if, if we're going to discuss Severian as the author rather than Wolf as the author uh, on, on this level, Severian is making a choice to end the book in what could be construed an unsatisfactory manner right after talking about how even though he's not trying to entertain quote unquote but there are others besides these spectators who must be satisfied and he uses the word satisfied and he you know he he goes uh, across this whole you know and he says these scores and hundreds may be likened to the readers of a written account so he is stating a point here that this story has to be satisfying but then he makes a decision in the accounting of the story to be unsatisfying for many yeah. readers.
0: Yeah, he acknowledges the that like I think in uh, in the last chapter as well in Heather when uh, we get a page break halfway through the chapter, roughly so, and he goes on saying, as it proved, he was half an error. No doubt, you who have perhaps seen the wall many times, perhaps passed often through one or another of its gates, will be impatient with me. But, and this is what I focused on, before I continue this account of my life, I find I must, for my own peace, spend a few words on it. So he's talking again about his own investment in re- recounting this story. So, yeah, I mean, like, there's, there's a lot to dig into there. And I, I, I in, in, in some small way, I kind of wish we had focused even more microscopically on these chapters and had spent even longer on, on this book itself. Cause I, I, I feel like there's all of this dimension that has yet to be explored that I'm, I'm not appreciating it because I'm focusing on what's coming up next.
1: Well, um, let's explore another dimension of this. Then the same okay. passage, if we look at this, not as the character Severian writing this, but the reality, Gene Wolf creating this story, you have to think, Oh, well, you you can't take this at, at his word. Clearly, Gene Wolfe knows of literary style. Clearly, he <laughs> understands yeah. the function of the pieces of a story and how to put them together to create a satisfying and entertaining narrative. And so he's even making some meta commentary by including this passage, almost almost a joke. You know, when you read somebody professing ignorance and and saying, oh, you know, I'm taking baby steps, learning how to tell a story in an entertaining way. But it is in the midst of a book that is without a doubt a masterwork of literature. (laughs) You know, it's Mm. it makes you pause and irony is real. yeah, Yeah. And this is one of those this is one of those things that only certain authors can really pull off. There has to be an awareness, but there also has to be a willingness not to take yourself too seriously. You know, like if, if somebody's trying really hard to make a a meta commentary on their own writing, they're not going to just come out and say, I'm bad at this, you know? But using Severian as a filter, Wolf is able to do that. And depending on how you're going to write the book, you can, or how you're going to read the book, you can read this as simply the character revealing something about his own proclivities, or you can read it as a bit of a joke on the part of the author himself.
0: Yeah, that's exactly how I read it. I mean, I definitely had that moment of chuckle and I wrote down the actual quote here as soon as I read it. Severian slash Gene Wolfe, however you choose to interpret it, saying, I know little of literary style, but I've learned as I have progressed. It takes a specific kind, a very special kind of author to make a reader laugh when they understand the complexity of such a statement. Mm -hmm. It really does. It's it's something that, that can only be demonstrated. It can't really be worked up to like i i, I love the fact that, that i just stumbled across this i was not ready for it and it made me legitimately laugh out loud there were probably i, I wouldn't have considered it as a particularly comedic book but there are there probably two or three moments where i had a giggle this is absolutely one of them this was the funniest line i read i know liter, little of literary style
1: yeah i actually
0: yeah. literally stopped and wrote down okay there guy <laughs> that was my note on that line right there
1: yeah and then to take this another step
0: Take it another step. Go for it. He has
1: uh, this line. Similarly, you who will someday delve into Master Oltan's library Mm -hmm. will require of me no long delays. Personages who are permitted to speak only briefly, yet do it well. Certain dramatic pauses which shall signal to you that something of import is about to occur. A excitement and a sating quantity of blood. How many of those requirements... Do you think he actually stuck to in the writing of this book?
0: I'd have to, oh God, I'd literally have to see it in writing and then compare it.
1: So no long delays will require of me no long delays in Uh in the telling of the story.
0: Well, I mean, that's up to us as a reader to just continue on.
1: Personages who are permitted to speak only briefly yet do it well. Bingo. Uh, I don't know about that so much.
0: What do you mean? There's so many uh, transient transient characters in here that are just like there and gone. Yeah, I was about but then to call
1: but it. then look at these gigantic blocks of text as Heather stutters his way yeah. through unintelligible monologues. You know, and and so if you if you look at the require of me no long delays, you're thinking of it in the modern sense of oh well, it's been 11 years since George R. R. Martin released a book. He's talking about delays in the progress of the story itself. And I think there very much are delays. When you look at the pace of this book, the pace of the events, Severian constantly stops and digresses and ruminates on philosophy or nature or something instead of just getting on with the story. Hmm, And this right here is one of those cases as he's saying, you require of me no long delays. He is delaying the story.
0: Yeah, but that depends on the on the on the assumption of the kind of reader involved. That's for for my kind of reader, but there are there are other readers mm. who are wanting to stop and smell the proverbial roses and he wouldn't be stopping. But th- those
1: are not the readers he's talking about. Oh. He's very clearly saying, "You require of me no long delays." As he's delaying the story. And as then And then we'll move on certain dramatic pauses, which shall signal to you that something of import is about to occur. How often in the book did something just happen?
0: And you're like, Whoa, (laughs) (laughs) too many times. I don't care to count, to be honest.
1: Yeah. 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 And then, uh, excitement. Was there a ton of excitement in this story?
0: No, no. I'd say that the, 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 I mean, again, going back to your earlier point, if I were to try and pinpoint a, 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 climax of sorts in this book it's really oddly uh, positioned I would have called it the duel the monomachy which was in the first half of the book so how does that work as a climax I don't know Um,
1: Uh, and then finally a sating quantity of blood
0: well I mean there's plenty of blood I would say it's not described but it's definitely implied I mean he took off Agilus's head there was a uh, description of the of of the fountain of blood in terms of satisfying mm-hmm. crowds. I mean, there was this passage about Master Werenfried Yeah, and this this also got super meta about Severian trying to please both proverbial crowds who want separate things. You know. Yep. Um, yeah, I mean, it all indi- I, I would I would argue that it it really relies ultimately on interpretation by the reader. A lot of this does. Almost everything does. Really.
1: Well, as as all stories do. But here he is centering himself as the writer and saying, I know what you want as the reader. And, and even, even if we are to take him at his word and, and assume that if not all readers, the vast majority of readers want this, this list of things, he fails to deliver on this list of things. And if you look at it from the point of view of Severian as the writer, that is a failing on the part of Severian. If you look at it, in in the real world sense of Gene Wolfe being the writer, it's not a failure so much as it is a commentary and a subversion of expectations.
0: Yeah, yeah, Lots, definitely food for thought. <laughs> like this is why, this is why we
1: have to take so many episodes to cover these books because we wouldn't be able to give this passage, the 10 or 15 minutes of literary conversation that it deserves, you know, if we're covering the whole book in one or two episodes. Yeah. Like it's, and this is something that can and will take on further meaning when you come back on a reread, you know, it's, you can apply these principles to the entire book of the new Sun, and, and, See whether or not you think Severian achieved all of those goals, all of those requirements in the, the story as a whole, rather than just this one volume.
0: You know, on Severian's reliability mm-hmm. as a narrator, you know, I, again, we've, we've gone over this point several times about his claims that he, you know, about his perfect memory, his, his pure memory. But then we have this moment in the dream with Triskel and Master Malrubius. And he tells the Master, after this, this question about governance that, that you had referred to, his first response is that he doesn't recall learning such a thing. I'm always primed at this point to look for something that Severian admits to saying, I, I don't recall this. But then after Malrubius asks him a second time, he recites the answer perfectly. All seven of, the, of these principles of governance so there's something funky going on there. I realize I've, I've kind of switched the direction of this style of conversation, but what? By all means, what the hell is going on here? What am I? What am I to take from this as a first time reader? Drew, help me for Christ's sake! He doesn't recall learning such a thing, and then five seconds later, answers it perfectly.
1: Well, I I'm going to in turn, uh, again pivot on on this. Okay. Uh, on previous episodes, we've talked about the use of dreams in this book and how Wolf does yeah. dreams differently. And the two main dreams we talked about were the Baldander's dream uh, in bed in the inn when he goes beneath the ocean and, and, and we learn. the Undines put on the play. Uh-huh. And then, of course, the night that he's raised to journeyman and Master Malrubius comes, you know, opens the door and he hears tricycle... Padding down the hallway outside. Um, and and there's a conversation over, you know, was this, did this happen? You know, what was it real? Was it a dream? Severian kind of thinks it was a dream or was real until he mm-hmm. remembers upon waking and becoming fully conscious. He's like, oh, Master Malrubius has, has been dead for, you know, but- uh, since I was a little kid. Uh, although, again, we have a, on the subject of unreliability, he talks about Master Malrubius, and uh, he says he he's not sure how old he was when Master Malrubius died. But he remembers everything else about the time around Master Malrubius, oh. because he's got a perfect memory. Well, but he doesn't remember how old he was when he
0: died? Yeah, that's so sus. Also, I mean, with the, with the you know, so-called reality of these dreams or at least corporeality he feels the the warmth of triskel having just left his side when he wakes up and dr Talos is like oh yo you're you were sleeping with that side towards the fire of course that side is going to be warm i don't buy Mm it i don't buy it this is too important severian we have to take this as severian recounting what he thinks at a later time as the autark with a lot more context than we currently have he, we are supposed to take this as being important. He later thinks this is important enough to recount to us. So I yes. don't think he would be bringing this up if this was just a one-off, non-consequential thing. These, there's something happening here. Of course, there would be. Obviously, you would expect this. There is something deeper happening here. I don't buy this. I, Dr. Talos saying this is just, oh, you're just feeling this. No, I don't.
1: Okay. Yeah. Uh, I'm not going to comment on that.
0: Oh, I would hope you wouldn't, unless, yeah. uh, you know, if, if that's going to spoil anything. Yeah. <laughs>
1: yeah, I'll, I will say read and find out.
0: Yeah, rafo on that one. Um, yeah, we're still in our style here. Um, anything else? Style? I just have a couple of, like, l- lovely metaphors, but um, anything else that you want to throw at us that's going to be a larger discussion?
1: Uh, let me check through my notes here. Um, uh. Ooh. Oh, those notes are from well past this. Uh, <laughs> cause I also Imagine. have the omnibus version. Um, and so I have shadow and claw and I was scrolling to the end and I was like, Oh yeah, that's all for Claude conciliator. Uh, you know, I don't think I have anything else style wise. I want to talk about here that, that one passage and then the ending were the main points. Um, yeah. Unless this you want to talk make- about, uh, the chapter titles, uh, there, the chapter titles here are pretty straightforward in this section.
0: Uh-huh.
1: Um, we have the play five legs morning and Heather. I think the only one that's even slightly, uh, you know, slightly obscured is five legs, but of course this is, the chapter in which the dream occurs and master malrubius with two legs and tricycle with three legs that's five. Oh my god you
0: know. how did i not put that together i'm so ashamed of myself right now that <laughs> you just click those together for me oh my goodness
1: yeah but then nah. morning is of course after yeah. it's the morning and then heather <laughs> is when <laughs> heather yeah, shows up so
0: obvious than that yeah straightforward yeah. And Heather, of course. Yeah. They were. Yeah.
1: So, uh, shall we move on to our language segment then?
0: Uh, real quick. There were two metaphors, oh. similes, that I just adored here. We'll, we'll, we'll you know throw this in with style. Um, Jolenta's face, at one point, is described as being pure and perfect as the curve of a rainbow. Oh, hmm. God, such a good line. Baldander's voice described... Like the rolling of heavy stones. I literally stopped and I wrote down. Ugh. I tried to try to spell <laughs> that. It was U N G H H H. That was such a good simile. Just the, the sheer nonchalance with which Gene Wolfe will throw those forward on the page is just spectacular. I love it. I love yeah. it. Yeah. Okay, yeah, language. We can get straight into language if you would like. I have... Yeah, let's do this. Probably, I probably have like 15 words here. So, anchorite. Anchorite, all right. This is someone who, for religious reasons, withdraws from secular society so as to be able to lead an intensely prayer-oriented, ascetic, or Eucharistic-focused life.
1: Yep, a recluse or a holy hermit.
0: Right. Uh, uh well, that was what I I read on Google. It's like commonly misinterpreted as a recluse. I guess like this is kind of not necessarily reclusive behavior, although it's it, it's you know kind of just like colloquially interpreted as such.
1: Mm. Um the the Lexicon Earthus has it as a person who has withdrawn or secluded himself from the world, a recluse a holy hermit.
0: Okay, so that'll, that'll be on the actual context of the story since it's in the lexicon Earth is
1: uh, No, yeah. the, that is the in the real world history definition of Anchorite. What? Yes.
0: Oh, okay. I learned another thing today. Yeah, My the favorite.
1: lexicon has uh, for each of these entries, it'll have usually a quote from the book itself, the context of where it's used. And then uh, depending on how in depth the entry is, it will have history in italics. And that is the real world history of the word. And then sometimes it'll have, um, a myth section or, uh, a, an etymological breakdown from, you know, another language. Uh, it'll have, oh, I miss it. uh, occasionally commentary from the author, Michael Andre, drew um, yeah, but pretty much uh, every single entry has history, like real-world history of the word.
0: I'm seeing the definition right now, and I can see exactly where my brain kind of got off the proverbial highway. Um, it, it continues on here. While anchorites are frequently considered to be a type of religious hermit, unlike hermits, they were required to take a vow of stability of place, opting for permanent enclosure. I had just read, because it, it went on into ellipses, while anchor uh, anchorites are frequently considered a type of religious hermit, dot, 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 I was like, oh, okay, there's going to be an a a butt there yeah okay okay thank you for the additional information yeah uh penurious i want to say that is my favorite word this week although there there is another one that comes later that may also vie for that place penurious p-e-n-u-r-i-o-u-s this is extremely poor poverty stricken Mm -hmm. i love that penurious yeah um this could just be because it was dr Talos, that said that, and I just love Dr. Talos. I cannot wait to talk about this character later. Um, but uh, yeah, that was cool. Um, sotto voce or sotto voce or sotto voce. Oh,
1: yeah, uh, it's it's like a particular, um, like speaking under your breath, yeah. right? Uh, yeah. for S-O- stage
0: direction, t o v o c e, under the breath or undertone, yeah, yeah. um, Bidou. <laughs> I had never heard bedew before. As a there was a, a description of Baldanders and the froth coming forth from his acting to bedew his chin. I had never heard that word before, and I I got some sort of childish glee out of it. I don't know why, <laughs> uh, but it was a lot of fun. So uh, how is it
1: words. spelled? B e d e w. Oh, to bedew. Oh yeah, to yeah, bedew gotcha, as gotcha. a verb. Yeah, yeah
0: it bedewed his chin. Yeah. Or a tube to do his chin. Um, ennui. 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 Ooh, that's so close to the French. I, I really like that.
1: Yeah. So, uh, funny story about this one. <laughs>
0: funny um, story, but ennui. E and
1: Go ahead. Yeah. Uh, so, I read this word many times, m- many different books, but I had never heard it said aloud. So, I always mm-hmm. thought it was pronounced N U I. And it was just like a year or so ago. And I actually think I may have told this story on the podcast. Like, I I was talking to one of my friends and said N-U-I. And he was like, what? And I spelled it. He's like, oh, ennui. I was like, oh, I've heard ennui. I, and I never put it together that that was the pronunciation of the word E-N-N-U-I.
0: Oh, interesting.
1: Yeah. I, I Sounds like you were in the same boat as I was. I'm in the
0: same boat. I've never... Huh Okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, again for that's exactly how you would pronounce pronounce it in French it'd be ennui. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so if this is a feeling of weariness or dissatisfaction is what this is. Yeah. Um there is a Specie S P E C I E. This it was used in the sentence it goes when the undoubted species or species, I don't know what it, this means in the same or like form or kind? Uh-huh. Ever heard it? Um,
1: yes. And in this particular instance, it is talking about coins. It's talking okay. about a variety of coins. Be a,
0: yeah, okay. Sweet, 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 sweet. Foeman. Obviously, I was able to get this one through context. Obviously, just being able to pick apart the word, etymologically speaking, F-O-E-M-E-N. This is oh. an enemy in war, but it's usually used in a poetic sense. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm. That was but a heather Drew, word, right?
0: That was definitely. A lot of these coming up were yeah. going to be heather words. You better believe it. <laughs> Drew, you're going to like this one in particular. Alzebo. A-L-Z-A-B-O. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. Uh, this was going to
1: be a miscellaneous point for me, but...
0: Yeah, I searched Alzebo, and... And didn't get a satisfactory return so i searched Alzebo definition and i kept getting the same return this is a according to google a large bear-like predator from another star system in the gene wolf universe which gave me pause because and i'm sure you're going to correct me on this i i was under the impression that severian was using specifically earth terms and he was just translating for us. What the hell is Alzebo? Severian
1: is not using earth terms. Wolf is using earth terms and translating Severian's work into 20th century language. Gotcha. Uh, Alzebo is an archaic transliteration of the Arabic al meaning wolf, jackal, or a star in the constellation Canis.
0: Say again, sorry? You cut off there.
1: It is an archaic transliteration of the Arabic al meaning uh, wolf, jackal, or a star in the constellation Canis.
0: Hmm. <laughs> in the constellation Canis. So, bear again. Uh, dog. What?
1: Ursa is, is Ursa bear.
0: is, sorry, sorry. I, I realized that a second after I said that. Thank you. Yeah. Okay.
1: Uh, and then there is also... Um, uh, the Lexicon Earthus mentions Pliny... Uh, Pliny's description of the hyena in his Natural History Book 8 tells of an animal that can. S- oh, I'm not going to read that.
0: Yeah, don't read that. <laughs> I, I could tell just by the tone when you drifted off there. I was like, oh, don't read this.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. But yeah, th- this is uh, further real world inspiration for what the Alzebo is in the Book of the New Sun. Uh but yeah it's it is an archaic transliteration of an Arabic word. That's ah. why you
0: can't find it in any English dictionary. Oh yeah. Because <laughs> it's know, not that. an English you word. <laughs> I want to say this next one is pronounced Stevedore. Steve oh, Dor. Wait. Steve, Steve Dor. Dor I don't want it to be pronounced that way. That was how I originally phonetically said it, and I was like, this bothers me. I want it to be Stevedore. It's Steve yeah. Dor, really? Yeah,
1: it's a it's a fairly common word, I feel like. Is it?
0: Oh, shit. Yeah. I haven't heard this one yet. Oh. This is a person employed or contract engaged at a dock to load and unload cargo from ships.
1: Yeah. Yeah, like that, I... I I'm gonna look here, but I doubt this word is even in the lexicon.
0: Oh, no. Uh, if it's not even in the, in the lexicon, that means it's granted that you know it and now I'm just sound like a dumbass. YouTube, let's search it up. It is not in the lexicon. Oh, no. Yep, I'm I'm looking at a bunch of Steve Doring orientations now on YouTube. Damn it! (laughs) Damn it. Okay, continuing on. Um, Okay, so we definitely have to draw a point to talk about this one. I had brought this up to Drew in our quick, before the podcast, you know, housekeeping notes. Um, I had originally thought because I got zero, I mean literally zero returns on Google, I thought this may have been a, a typo. In the ebook that I got, apparently not. I will spell it here right now: s t u n s apostrophe l s. I put the s as an afterthought because I figured the uh, the um, ebook may have used it as a plural. Uh, but s t u n s apostrophe l s. Stunsel, stunsel.
1: Yeah, this is, is a contraction. This is like a uh, this is a heatherism where like he is he's just.
0: He's he got to, an
1: accent. A, he, it is a contraction of studding sails, which are sails extended from the sides of a square sail as by lashing additional spars to the yard. Studding uh, and he's okay. just he's just shortening
0: it. It's it's okay. like it's. <laughs> Damn! I would have preferred that Gene Wolfe had in that moment decided. Hey, I'm gonna. Maybe not contract these two words, <laughs> you know, ah, whatever. There's a lot of things I wish Gene Wolfe would have done, but just to make it easier for me.
1: But I mean, I think that's, a, again, you know, it's one of those deliberate choices where Heather's dialogue is supposed to disorient you. It's supposed to make you feel uncomfortable. So throwing this in here as a contraction and making you stop and be like, what the heck is that? And you then know.
0: search it on Google and get zero returns, at least zero <laughs> satisfactory returns. I was like, well, "Yes,
1: I'm sure Gene Wolfe was very aware of Google as a, a future <laughs> search engine when he wrote this in the early '80s." <laughs>
0: uh, oh, this that long ago. How am I this far detached from this? Normally, I have at least an idea. Oh, uh,
1: I believe this came out in what 80... '84.
0: I was thinking '90s. Okay, I was at least ten years off. Wow. Okay. Um, Fricatrice. Uh Uh-huh. F-R-I-C-A-T-R-I-C-E. This is a lewd woman. Yeah, and
1: this one's really easy from the context.
0: Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I just never heard it before. Yeah. Um, The next one really threw me for a loop because I had, I thought I knew the word, but I knew it in a different spelling. Reverie. I, I, th- I had thought I was like R-E-V-E-R-I-E. Obviously, we've uh-huh. all read, at least most of us have read reverie as like a uninterrupted, sort of profound, in the moment thought that you're kind of ignoring everything else. Um, yeah. But it's spelled R-E-V-E-R-Y in the book, reverie. And this is, as I found on Google after searching, an abstracted state of absorption. So it's close, but... That was I found that on vocabulary.com. The hmm. rest uh, Google, Google so badly wanted to auto correct no, th- it for me. Th- to reverie R E V E R I that
1: that definition makes sense for reverie. Like you're say that again, an abstracted state of self absorption.
0: Of, of absorption. Just of absorption. absorption. So absorption of an idea, probably. You're still yeah, absorbed yeah, yeah. by the idea. It's it's very, very close. Yeah, that makes but, sense. Google just kept throwing at me, are you sure you're not being a dumbass? <laughs> Auto, you know, autocorrected to reverie, R-E-V-E-R-I-E, which is, of course, from the French, uh, réveiller, which is to dream, I believe, or mm-hmm. to wake. It's one of those two things. Um, I want to say it's actually to wake. Um, <laughs> Bosquets. B-O-S-Q-U-E-T-S. Uh, is, is it not bosquet? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Okay. Um, a formal plantation of trees in a variety of forms.
1: Yeah, I, a plantation, okay. I, I always thought of it as like a landscaped garden, like, like a uh, planned, laid out garden.
0: Yeah, B-O-S-Q-U-E-T-S, Bosque, or Bosque's. Marichip. Oh, the Marichip, yeah. yeah. I've never heard Marichip hoarse. before. This is an extinct proto-horse of the family equidae that was endemic to North America during the Miocene. And the Miocene was 16 million years ago to 5 million years ago. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) This last one, I said I promised myself I wasn't going to bring it up. Deese. D-E-E-S-E. This Uh took me a while. Um, Google told me that this was an East Country term for a place where herrings are dried. (laughs) Um, definitions.net told me uh, sorry that was definitions.net otherwise Urban Dictionary told me this is thirst of a kind but that's Urban Dictionary so
1: I already, yeah I would not uh, so, uh, so the I forget lexicon the on this one. has these as icons representing the heavenly court Deeses.
0: icons representing the heavenly court yeah hmm. I'm really tempted to make a de nuts joke. <laughs> uh, I couldn't find it though. Um, that's um, it though.
1: Yeah, this is in the description of the Pelerines as they're leaving this is as they're leaving
0: to, town. Yeah, that's why it's my last one, yeah.
1: And Jonah says their servants carried dieses illuminated with candles, but reversed, and the priestesses themselves had torn their habits. So this is them mourning, right? And so they have they're inverting all of their holy symbols. Uh,
0: I love that imagery.
1: So I actually have one that I want to talk about here. Uh, oh. That is from the, uh, from the same scene as, as these uh, it's when Jolenta is angry and she's kind of yelling at Dr. Talos and saying, Oh, you know, like Severian and Dorcas, you know, she can't be my understudy. They're leaving. And she says, didn't he say this morning he was going back to look for you know Jolenta wheeled on me more beautiful than ever for being angry? What did you call them? says, And I said Pellerines. And at this a man riding a merry chip at the edge of the concourse, blah blah blah. So we've already talked about what Pellerine is. It's a, a mantle or a cape, a specifically a specific kind of furred cape. Okay. Um and and having like a particular cut in the front. And, and these are the types of mantles that the Pelerine religious order here wears, but Peles is not just a, you know, a, a, wolf having her like mispronounce the name. Oh. Peles's are a different type of long fur cloak.
0: I should have thought to look that up then. Oh no. Yeah. Go ahead. So he's, okay.
1: he's playing a joke again. Like he, he's, He's that having Jolenta, y- you know, forget the word and say something sort of similar. Like people make jokes of that all the he's time. He's
0: not ever making up words. Oh, I should have but, thought
1: to look that up. But the word that she ah. like just missed on is describing another type of fur cloak, fur-lined cloak, like pelerines.
0: Oh, damn. Yeah. That yeah. One went so far over my head as to be in stable <laughs> orbit. Wow. Okay. Thank you for making sure that I appreciated that.
1: Yeah. Like, so I, I got a chuckle out of that. And this brings me back, you know, to the, the many times over the course of this podcast that I have engaged with the idea of humor and what humor works for me and what doesn't. And it's just hilarious uh, to consider the vastly different types of humor between this and something like the Dresden files like this, you need to know multiple obscure definitions to even get the, the joke.
0: Yeah.
1: The meta joke. And then Dresden files is like the most in your face, uh, you know, juvenile humor. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Yeah. 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 This is this one. Gene Wolf is like sifting for giggles. Yeah, game. that's a
1: good way to put it. Mm. Paying for gold. Go
0: into our character discussion or our favorite scenes, miscellaneous. Oh, yeah, characters first, obviously. Um, yeah, let's do characters. Okay, Severian. Yeah, obviously, I have to start with uh-huh. Severian, and Yeah, I say that the weekly time. check-in. Yeah, how, how you yeah. feeling? I don't really have a strong as strong of a negative opinion i would say of severian as i had at the beginning i don't think that's because my opinion has really changed um i think or at least it hasn't really moved on the spectrum i think i've merely managed to get a broader sense of the scale of severian's complexity part yeah. this uh, this beer i've brought is like it's giving me lots of burps <laughs> severian's complete nonchalance like in the art of torturing or causing pain, that's that's still my number one issue, my uh, number one obstacle in, like, really empathizing with him, investing in him. Because um, it's just, as, as I like to think, that no matter the upbringing, human beings should instinctually shy away from causing suffering and causing pain. I don't think that's, I don't agree with that being a learned habit so much as just a so, I, I, I kind of, Natural evil, but that's a, that, that's a whole other moralistic conversation we can have later. His willingness to do violence to women or anyone really for so minimal reasoning—it's obviously very concerning. But he continues to give me hope, even in this section. He—he—he he, he, like the way he immediately drags down the uh, the the guy who whipped Jolenta. You know, yeah. Uh, although he had obviously in the moment, he also stops to make sure we understand that. It was more to impress Dorcas than anything else. But it's at least an honest, understandable motive. You can wrap your head around that. It's not a good act when he explains his reasoning, at least morally, but it's a humanizing act. So because it's humanizing, it makes him slightly easier to empathize with. Slightly. I want to emphasize slightly. (laughs) So I won't say that I've come to like Severian more on on the spectrum of hate to love. But I've definitely got a, a greater pullback, you know, a, a greater sense for uh,
1: the, the context of his humanity, the
0: dimension that it takes to appreciate um, a final opinion on him. Because I, I feel like obviously I'll finish this someday and I will have a final opinion on Severian. It'll change slightly after that as we continue to have conversation about him. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I've I've just I've pulled back a lot more. I'm not looking at him on such a micro level. It's more of a macroscopic level now, so. mm-hmm. and I, I appreciate him as a character specifically for that reason because he has those ki- those, those those layers. So,
1: oh oh wow. certainly yeah. This like, sorry this
0: this beer this beer that I'm bringing on for the final draft. This is eight point five percent. This is the strongest beer that I've brought on. I'm I'm having uh-huh. difficulty enunciating my words at this point. <laughs> it's really strong. So all right, let's continue. Uh, well, also,
1: yeah, it was Severian. I don't think, in my opinion, that this is the... Like, I think he has moments in the later books where I dislike him more than I do in at any point in this book. Uh, but overall, I feel like this book is Severian at his lowest point. This is Severian at the beginning of his journey.
0: Okay, lowest on a scale of
1: like, like just because it opens with him murdering somebody in cold blood, right? Like Mm -hmm. as a child and then we, and then we get the context of his very messed up childhood and then about a third of the way through the book, he finally sets out on the journey that will change him and ultimately end with him as the Autark and he has a lot of growing to do, right? Like, Like you said, he's an unlikable character. He's a problematic character. He has very messed up attitudes in a lot of ways. And one of the central kind of questions of the Book of the New Sun is, is Severian redeemable? And so this journey is going to explore that. And we've only started scratching the surface of his rhetorical redemption at the end of this book.
0: I'm going into it hopeful, though, that Severian, mm-hmm. even if I don't change how much I like him, there there may be more to appreciate about Severian.
1: Oh, yeah. So oh, yeah.
0: That's why I'm still hopeful going forward. Um, but I have nothing else really to say about Severian at the point, at this point, I should say. Uh,
1: um, yeah, I'm, I'm ready to talk about some other characters. Uh, what about Jolenta?
0: Jolenta? Okay, um, I had just kind of, uh, the fact that you're bringing her up as a character to talk about, when we've been with her so briefly, is... Hmm.
1: Uh, who is Jolenta, Rob?
0: Okay, she, uh, okay, <laughs> pardon me. <laughs> Why did, okay, she met them earlier in the book, right? She did. She did, and so for some f***ing reason, Severian has to be introduced to her again. Yes. Why the fuck is that?
1: Because she looks nothing like she did back then. Why the f- Jolenta was the waitress.
0: Right. Why the f does she not look sorry, that's like four F bombs now. Does she not look anything like she did earlier? That's Dr. Is Talos so
1: transformed sus. her. Okay. Dr. Ha- Talos, remember, offers her
0: I can make
1: you beautiful. Make
0: beautiful, I can exactly. Yeah. But I thought he was talking about his talents as a playwright. As you know, no.
1: He's yeah, talking about his talents later, as a doctor.
0: But why the hell is is Severian not astute enough to put this together? Because, because she looks
1: nothing like Listen herself. Listen to
0: me. I Rob Santos was able to put this together. Severian should have done it quicker. I am the dumbass. I am an idiot. <laughs> How the hell did Severian not put this together? I don't get it.
1: Because he, didn't even he...
0: consider that he like surely when he saw Doctor Talos. By the way, I loved when I recognized Doctor Talos and I recognized Baldanders when he came across them. Uh, performing their play mm-hmm. uh but my first question in that moment was where's the waitress and then severian sees this woman with them who obviously is super beautiful super attractive uh, otherworldly so but why is his first thought not about where where did that waitress go is she not here like he should have had enough to put it together right there he should because
1: have. he doesn't care he uh, does not care about the play or Dr. Talos' company or anything. But remember, the first thing he does so after easy. agreeing to join I mean, them is to go off and be like, yeah, I'm not going to rejoin them.
0: And so in his mind, why would he
1: bother Like, why would he bother worrying about okay, that? Okay, this is you another uh,
0: young At man. At this point, he is like, utterly
1: consumed with Dorcas.
0: He actually stops to make point of that. He, t- he talks about how he had fallen in love with Dorcas on the walk after seeing mm-hmm. that floating citadel in the sky. Though, yeah,
1: and and, and that, that, that it's not stars. just like a a carnal lust or yeah, like not I, just that. But. This is a, an ongoing thing where he'll he'll compare the women he has loved with each other and the, the different manners in which he loves okay. them. Interesting. Um, okay, but but yeah, with Dorcas, the he he ends up calling her a true companion. That there's yeah. this deeper this level of, of connection. In, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so yeah, he's he's like completely absorbed in that at the time and I like and so, that, that's another
0: one of my uh redeeming qualities for Severian. i forgot to mention that his yeah inexplicable and endearing love for dorcas yeah mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. um and i like that dorcas is innocence in this innocence uh, oh
0: my god with, with the capitanum as dr yep. talos i keep switching between talos and talos i'll just say talos uh <laughs> Yeah, innocence, and his multiple names for Severian—the Angel of Torment, the Angel of Agony—you know, uh, it's yep. cool. It's cool. The metalhead in me likes that too. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and and that. So you you bring up the personification of death that Severian represents here, and mm-hmm. and that he represents in other scenes throughout this series, but then you put it into context with. Dorcas, who views Severian as a savior, as the opposite of death. She clings to him. He's a beacon for her. And that's why I i think that's what gives Severian that kind of oomph to falling in love with her on this deeper level, because she's the only person that he meets here who doesn't treat him as this figure of horror and death.
0: Mm-hmm. And how he responds she, to that. Yeah. And unconsciously so. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like yeah. He, I'm not writing him off as a character. It's just there's it yeah, there's so much to digest with Severian and and Gene Wolfe uses characters like Dorcas to expound upon that. It oh, it's <laughs> I love how it's done. Oh, we yeah. We have been talking about Dr. Talos. Do you want to switch? You want sure. to talk about this guy? Yeah. This I my favorite character in this <laughs> book, hands down.
1: I'm not oh. surprised.
0: Yeah. I mean, the charisma just drips off of the page. Yes, it with does. With Doctor Talos, and the fact that you blew my mind with him being a robot, the I just the dichotomy of that. I have two quotes here that made me just stop and smile. Just it such an endearing moment for Doctor Talos. Uh, both of them. Doctor Talos turned until. He was walking backward and waved at the wall as proudly as if he had built it himself. I can envision that. Oh. I am yeah. not somebody who is particularly strong in the visual arts, you know. I can see that scene. Uh-huh. Dr. Talos threw hit th- sorry threw wide his arms to embrace the universe. That may be my favorite sentence in this book. <laughs> threw wide his arms to embrace the universe. How else can you write that line and get that same point across? I love it. That is the only way to state that. I had such a moment of it just pump there. It was so good, and the uh, described as Severian can only described uh, the prank played with Baldanders at the end of the play and Doctor Talos's malignant good humor. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like what Oxy- a sketchy thing language. to do. Like to release
1: this. Release this giant into the crowd to scare everybody into dropping their money, to drop
0: all of their things <laughs> and get the really interesting things. He, he can, he can predict, you know, down to the T how much money he's going to get yeah. in the first act, but <laughs> the real treasures are what they drop when they're scared out of their minds. <laughs> yeah. His malignant good. humor Dropping purses and jewelry
1: a- and food yeah. and like
0: the piglet. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh no. <laughs> it was so uh, bad. But yeah. yeah, that was so fun. Oof, man, this beer is good. I can't wait to talk about it. Um, I also
1: love the moment where, you know, they're talking about the wall and yeah? Dr. Talos, you know, mentions, you know, look at how well they planned all those years ago. Even today, there's still all of this room for the expansion of the city. Mm. And Baldander says it wasn't made for that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And he's and like,
1: then, oh, yeah, I'm sure, you know, since you were there. And then he winks yep. at Severian. Yeah. <laughs> Mm. So snarky. And
0: something about the <laughs> the city of Nessus being named as it was for a particular reason? Hmm. Interesting there.
1: Uh, yeah, Jonah says it wasn't called Nessus back then because the river wasn't yet poisoned. Yes.
0: That was um, interesting as a world-building point.
1: Yeah. You're
0: going to raffle me on that, aren't you?
1: Well, so the... I can't remember if we talked about this earlier in the book or not. Uh, Nessus is the name of a centaur who was killed by Hercules, uh, but he in turn killed Hercules with a poisoned shirt. Like he, he, he like played that. a trick on Hercules and gave him a, a a poisoned shirt.
0: I've heard the legend before, but I did yeah. not. We definitely did not talk about this in this context.
1: Yeah. So so like nessus as a name that comes that with a poison connotation
0: i think in a screw attack video yeah okay all right yeah it checks out it does so we talked about uh, as as
1: do most things in this
0: <laughs> i do not mean to imply anything possible <laughs> otherwise uh severian dorcas dr talos uh, baldanders anything but oh, well, we've, we've briefly talked about baldanders heather you want to talk about heather yeah, we got also talk known about as Heather. the man who wants to know where things are. Where are they then? Where is the strength? Where is the empire? Dude, oh. things are everywhere. <laughs> I I I could we could have I feel like we could have entire episodes about each paragraph, each soliloquy, each diatribe of his.
1: So, he He's just so strange, right? He's the strangest and,
0: character I've ever read. <laughs> I'm
1: like, not.
0: He's I'm not surprised because of that. He's interesting because of that.
1: Um. So. Yeah, like he he has this just attraction to Severian, and and here we get um explicitly Severian telling Doctor Talos. Um, about those people. You know, Dr. Talos is, you know Dr. Talos turned to me as if to say, he's your responsibility after all, just as Bald Andrews is mine. I love there that. are a good many of them, I told him. They find pleasure in pain and want to associate with us just as a normal man might want to be around Dorcas and Jolenta. And this is Severi talking about yeah, those people, just... the, groupies, the, the, yeah, the, gr- yeah, the groupies, the tortured groupies. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, but so
0: clearly wrong about that, but yeah.
1: clearly there's something more going on with Heather than yeah. just being a normal, you know, sadist, like the, oh, yeah. a normal sadist. Can't believe those are words that just came out of my mouth. Right. Uh, right, right. Because yeah. he, he's talking about crazy things. We already went over his first monologue where if you read between the lines a bit, you can come to realize he sailed on a ship that sailed between planets. It sails the stars. Yep. Not Ooh. a yep. Not a boat he on the water. He makes reference
0: to the armies of the sun. I went. Yeah. Oh, what is this? Yeah.
1: Um. And you, you know, he he talks about the dead moons of Verthandi and mm-hmm. uh, long than I signed eyes. on the silver sailed ships, the hundred masted, whose masts reached out to touch the stars.
0: Just the, the, the stars. Yeah. Yeah. I
1: floating among their shining jibs
0: with the, with Pleiades. the
1: Pleiades burning yeah. beyond the top Royal sparks. So like you, he's talking about zero G he's floating, you know, and, yep. and, and the stars are above him. And, uh, it's, so there's something more going on with him than just the, uh, and like I, I don't remember when exactly I put it together but there is there have been a lot of clues thus far about another connection of heather to a previous story element here and i, I don't think i want to tell you what it is yet cuz i i'm not sure if i picked up on it at, in this scene or if it was in a okay. a scene in the next book i
0: would need to reread but, to, to to find that and i probably will not yeah. reread before we finish the series yeah
1: no definitely not so <laughs> Yeah, um, but, still. but in this passage, maybe this is where. Uh, do you have any other characters you
0: want to talk about? Well, I still have one more thing that Heather okay. said that really interested me. Uh huh. Who else shall put the kernels back on the cob, fit the f- fledgling back into the egg again? So we've had time travel as a theme, or not a theme, but as a thing in this series so far. This is talking about, though, reversal on that. This is talking about redoing things. I want to say that there's going to be – this might be a prediction going forward, but there's, there's going to be some theme or some major story thing revolving around being able to go back and redo things in that kind of time travel. Okay. Just throwing that out there. All right. Casting All a right. wide net over the stars. <laughs> So, yeah. Uh, uh, no, no other characters, though. I'm, okay. I'm going to go into...
1: Miscellaneous here? Yeah. So, I really only have one miscellaneous point that I want okay. to talk about.
0: Uh, the Alzebo. <laughs> the Alzebo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go for it.
1: The description, the one time it's used in this book, she turned aside. This is, this is a Severian describing... How Dorcas is revolted by Heather. Yeah. She turned aside as one turns from the mutterings and cracking bones when an Elzebo savages a carcass.
0: What a line. That's so just like... Yeah. I think my subconscious just avoided that one and went, Yep, that's in one ear, out the other. Don't focus on that one too much.
1: Oh, but... but do
0: but don't though yeah because how creepy
1: is that Uh, there's something about mutterings
0: uh, i don't wanna nope it's it's so perfectly unsettling i'm gonna i'm gonna nope (laughs) right out of that one that's what i get to do
1: and this was my favorite line in in this uh segment so yeah interesting okay the mutterings and cracking bones so evocative
0: oh god evocative is a definitely good word for it my only miscellaneous point here is this moment in chapter 32 um, when Severian is talking about his newfound love for Dorcas and I have the quote here rather by loving Dorcas I loved Thecla more because Dorcas was another self (parentheses) as Thecla was yet to become in a fashion as terrible as the other was beautiful And I stopped, and I wrote down, and I texted Drew. Hang on. Is Thecla alive? Is that what this is saying? Now, respond. You get your chance. Go. Raffo. No, don't do that, though. (laughs) Tease me a little bit. What the hell does that mean? Uh, So, Thecla has yet to become in a fashion as terrible as... Dorcas is beautiful. There is more that he has to say about Thecla. Is this also going to be a flashback? Like, I'm just, I want to know. You can just raffle me on that. You should raffle me on that. Honestly, you should do that. Uh, how, about, how about this? Okay. You should raffle me. I'm, I'm being an idiot. Go for it.
1: It is not a flashback.
0: Okay. That's all I need to know. Okay. Alright. I'm ready to go into favorite scenes. I'll say
1: uh, one more okay. thing. Oh, yeah you have absolutely no idea where that is going.
0: (laughs) Okay. All right. Thank you. Thank you for that. Because the only, I I was like 99% happy about that, but the only (laughs) bit of negative I had about that was like, oh, now I know.
1: There is zero chance you have any idea where that is going.
0: Okay. All right.
1: Damn. So, so yeah. Um, I think uh, it's time after eight weeks to talk about our three favorite scenes.
0: Yes. Yes. There's one scene in particular. I'm going to draw a second here, uh, Drew, to get this ready for our favorite passage. Do you also have a favorite passage or no? Uh,
1: well, my favorite passage in this one was the uh, the Alzebo line.
0: Ah, shit. I'm set. Okay. So I need to find one passage in particular um, before our favorite scenes just so I can have it ready for after. Oh, uh, I mean, uh, where's the introduction? Do what you the, want. Yeah, where's the uh, introduction,
1: introduction of Doctor Talos? Is in. Senate? Um, I think chapter fifteen, Baldanders. Um.
0: Uh, we'll cut this. Uh, chapter
1: sixteen, the rag shop. Uh. Yeah. Are you already stealing my thunder here? <laughs> Am I? Actually, I stole my own thunder when we covered that chapter. I already said that that's like one of my favorite things in all of literature, much less this book. So
0: Okay, I got it right here. Uh, yeah, uh, Dr. Talos. Sorry, this is all cut from the front This is just me talking to Future Drew. We'll, we'll cut this. Uh, yeah, Dr. Talos' introduction was my number one favorite scene in this book. Yeah, same. Oh, bro. Okay, all right. Yeah. All right, cool. I'll let you uh, read it because I'm having trouble speaking with his fing strength of this beer. Okay.
1: Alright. So yeah, let's do let's do our three favorite scenes here.
0: Excellent. Okay. So my third favorite scene is the aftermath of the Monomachy and Dorcas being so adorable and caring for Severian. Specifically uh Severian mm-hmm. trying to take Terminus Est back while she's asleep and she just Dorcas just muttering and holding it fast. Yeah. yeah. It's just so endearing. So That was my third favorite scene, just for both of those characters. It was winning.
1: Okay. Uh, Well, my third favorite is Baldander's Dream via Severian.
0: Oh, okay. There's something I forgot to bring up. Baldander says later, I don't dream. He does. He says later, I don't dream. I forgot. I'm sorry. I just stepped on your third favorite scene there, but I forgot to bring this up The Miscellaneous. I had meant to, and I forgot it.
1: Fascinating.
0: Okay, <laughs> there's so much in that fascinating that I want to dissect, but okay, okay, sorry. Yes, continue on your... No,
1: yeah, that's all I have to say.
0: Oh, yeah, you do, okay. All right, <laughs> sorry.
1: Fascinating.
0: Uh, my second favorite scene is the hut in the jungle.
1: Ooh, nice, that that nearly made my top three.
0: The realization in that moment and what made me text drew over the real, like, yeah. the tokolosh or whatever, how it like the realization of who exactly the ghosts were. <laughs> oh my God. That was such a cool chilling, like spine chilling author, reaching out and grabbing me moment. It was awesome. Oh awesome. yeah. Your second favorite, my friend, my
1: second favorite is of course, the introduction of Heather, the night mm-hmm. before the execution. Yeah. Okay, yeah. I, you know, the his his whole rambling insane monologue, Master. When I was on the Quasar, I had a paracoita a doll. You see, a Genicon, That'll so, like so beautiful with her great pupils as dark as wells, her eye irises purple like asters or pansies blooming in summer, Master. Whole beds of them, I thought, had been been gathered to make those eyes, that flesh that always felt sun warmed, and I mean, just the he
0: the beauty in the
1: insanity. It's I said it, whatever last episode, two episodes ago. This is one of the most impressive, incredible inconceivable passages I've ever read. I like, I never ever would I be able to come up with something like this, much less execute it as beautifully as Wolf did. And I, I use the word beautiful specifically because it's so unsettling the content of it is stomach turning him ranting and raving, desiring pain for other people for the loss of something base and dirty, you know, a a sex doll and he wants people horribly tortured because it's gone. The content of it is awful. But the construction of it is beautiful.
0: It's a Michelangelo made of shit. <laughs> I think I made that analogy in the Acts of Cain. It's so good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I, your I favorite scene? Percent agree. My favorite scene, since I have been waxing rhapsodic about Doctor Talos, is the yeah. introduction of this character. That's it. Yeah. Yep. That's yours? Yes, sir. Yes. Oh, I oh, we vibe on this so much. You it, honestly drew, I have to say this, it's appropriate because the reason I love this so much is the way you blew my mind with it earlier on the podcast several episodes ago when you revealed to me he was a robot. And the charisma that dripped off the page, as I said earlier, in in several passages this week. It was such a, I don't know. Yeah. It was a moment that inspired me so much as somebody who wants to write charismatic characters to, to bring this character to life so much for me. It was just, ah, oh, it was awesome. I, I loved Dr. Talos and his introduction. It blew my mind. You blew my mind. It was the best part of this book for me. The best moment in this book.
1: Fantastic. And I'm going to read it. Uh, read it. Read because- it. Because... It, it, it deserves to be read. I'm not going to go into the whole breakdown. If you no. want to listen to that again, episode 176, covering chapters 14 through 18, has the whole the whole thing. But sing it. Doctor Talos leaned toward her as he said this, and it struck me that his face was not only that of a fox, a comparison that was perhaps too easy to make because his bristling reddish eyebrows and sharp nose suggested it at once but that of a stuffed Fox. I have heard those who dig for their livelihoods say, there is no land anywhere in which they can trench without turning up the shards of the past. No matter where the spade turns the soil, it uncovers broken pavements and corroding metal and scholars write that the kind of sand that artists call polychrome because flecks of every color are mixed with its whiteness is actually not sand at all, but the glass of the past, now pounded to powder by eons of tumbling in the clamorous sea if there are layers of reality beneath the reality we see even as there are layers of history beneath the ground we walk upon then in one of those more profound realities dr talos's face was a fox's mask on a wall and i marveled to see it turn and bend now toward the woman achieving by those motions which made expression and thought appear to play across it with the shadows of the nose and brows an amazing and realistic appearance of vivacity
0: I'm in a verbal coma right now a literary coma I feel like Teen Wolf has served up a Thanksgiving dinner that I ate in one bite inexplicably good ah I
1: unapproachably good writing.
0: (laughs) Is there anything that matches this in The Claw of the Conciliator?
1: Uh, There are certainly passages that many people love uh, on a similar level. Honestly, I think uh, in my experience of talking with people and listening to other podcasts, I don't think this passage uh, gets as much attention as it deserves. Uh, There are some flashier scenes and sequences in the coming books that people tend to focus on more, but there's, in all four of these books, there are going to be passages like this.
0: Good. Good to know. Yeah. I look forward to them. Yeah. Mm. So. All right.
1: Uh, but I, before we wrap up and go to the final draft here, I just want to get an overall impression. You're one book in. How you feeling?
0: It's too much for right now. It, I, <laughs> like, I can't say I'm surprised by any of what I've read. Um, I have been pre- uh, sufficiently prepared for it. <laughs> yeah, I, I, <laughs> let let's stand f-ing 10 seconds of silence as my overall impression of this book I, I i don't know what to think of it we have three more books to go you say yes
1: three more yep
0: i i really i i have nothing i i feel so like let's pull let's pull back a bit okay
1: you have read gene wolf before Going into the book, and the new son we we did the hero as werewolf. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you think that prepared you for this at all?
0: Not in any way. This entirely. <laughs> this is an entirely different magnitude of consideration and digestion that doesn't like you can you can zoom in on the macro. Oh, sorry, on the on the very very micro level, and you can appreciate the beauty of the written word for what it is. Gene Wolfe has he holds absolutely nothing back in deciding to wield the written word like a feather quill he, he's perfect like he, it's a paintbrush to him at the same time the 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 magnitude of what he's building is something that takes an entirely different mindset to appreciate
1: yeah i think it's the magnitude here There's, in hero is werewolf it
0: stretches me apart so much that i'm just i i can't sorry yeah. continue
1: in Hero as Werewolf, he uses a lot of the same literary techniques as he's using in the Book of the New Sun. He doesn't come out and explain the world. It's a puzzle. As you're moving through the short story, you begin to put the pieces together of what sort of world this is, that it's a far-future dystopian. Not as far-future as the Book of the New Sun, of course, but you know there's this is a science fiction story. The world is changed. Uh, There's been some either like alien presence or genetic modification. You know, there's, there are these things that you have to read between the lines to figure out. He doesn't just give it to you and he's doing the same thing here. But like you said, it's a matter of scale. Uh, The where, where hero is werewolf may feel like you are getting in the neighborhood pool and you jump in expecting it to be three feet deep and it's actually eight feet deep and you go in over your head and you're like, oh, I wasn't expecting that. The Book of the New Sun is standing on the beach watching a 10-foot wave barreling at you.
0: Uh, (laughs) I love, yeah, that's, that's exactly what this book is. You're so, left unconscious by its impact. I just, I don't know. I can't find the words to express, to articulate, to relate what it is that this book is leaving me with.
1: I feel like you're getting the first taste of the feeling I had when I finished Citadel of the Autark that first time. The sheer when I girth. I couldn't read any other authors for a month. After finishing the book of the new sun, because everything felt
0: amateur. Yeah, he's, uh, yeah, I definitely get the this, this sense that um, no author is going to do this for me. Yeah. In the future. Yeah.
1: So that said, let's that, head into the final draft.
0: Yes. So what are you drinking? I have been ranting and slurring my words as I have been. You can blame this one on Amsterdam Brewery. Um, I was searching before I actually read the passages or the, uh, the entire section for this week. I was in the local beer store and I found this one and I was like, oh, that's a great title. This sounds like a really tasty, nice and strong beer. This is 8.5% alcohol by volume. I, sh- I figured Fracture must surely match some sort of thematic thing in this part, but I I honestly couldn't find anything to uh, dedicate Mm. it to this week. However, I can say this is a marvelous beer. Um, It is delightfully refreshing, even when it's at almost room temperature. I've had three of them. That's why I've been slurring my words so much. And it's been awesome. (laughs) But yes, that is my final draft for this week. It's, an, Very it's nice. an easy Imperial IPA fracture from Amsterdam brewery and
1: yeah. Amsterdam brewery. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well I am drinking a non-alcoholic beer from athletic brewing company. This is their cerveza atletica. Uh, it's a non-alcoholic Vienna lager. Um, it's really good. Uh, like I, I gotta say, uh, as I've been not consuming alcohol, uh, I have found a couple of non-alcoholic beers that retain the flavor that I enjoy so much from drinking beer, uh, and this is definitely one of them. But, of course, I have a thematically appropriate beer. I'm sure you do. To talk about. Uh, this is one that I do not have with me presently. I've only had it once before uh, at a beer festival. Um, it, it, it is a... It's a pretty ridiculous beer. It's a Berliner Weiss-style sour ale, a donut-inspired beer.
0: A what-inspired um, what? How did you... Re- okay, sorry, continue. Uh,
1: it's a, a sour wheat ale brewed with raspberry, tart cherry, pineapple, and blueberry. Uh, they're going for, uh, like, a blue raspberry kind of flavor. As and it, it would. It yeah, did okay. taste pretty similar. Uh, it was a collaboration, nine giant brewing... Uh, is from Cincinnati, Ohio. Is the ones who made this collaborated with Streetside Brewery and Starlight Donut Lab on it. Um, my recollection of it was, yes, it tasted like sour blue raspberry, although it wasn't blue in color. Uh, it was it was like a really bright red. Um, okay. But this is uh, this one goes out to our new friend on the Mary Chip and the band Weezer. The beer is called. My name is Jonas.
0: No, fucking, no, it's not. <laughs> okay, hold on. Opening. Show it. Oh, you know what? That's that sorry. Oh yeah, I don't have it with yeah, me. Yeah, right, that's right. Yeah, I, I, I replayed that. I don't right think
1: there. they've uh, they've ever like canned or bottled this. I, I'm pretty sure it's like a most often tap room only, and then they've like probably brought it to a couple of beer festivals oh, and things. But
0: I will take a picture of the fracture that I have right here and I will upload it nice. to the chat or something, or I'll send it to you. One of those two things.
1: Yeah. But Jonas yeah. is a bro and we're going to J- see a lot more of him mm. in the claw of the conciliator. Okay. So yeah, sweet. That brings us to the end of the shadow of the torturer. This has been episode 181 of the inking out loud podcast. Next up, We are going to have a special guest on the show to cover 100 years of solitude. So it's going to be a different, a little bit of a different style of a book, a little bit different, uh, you know, change up from the typical inking out loud fair, but I think it's going to be a really interesting conversation. So hopefully you check in on that episode. The, The book is a classic. I mean, if you haven't read it, it's worth checking out. Um, yeah, looking forward to that one. As always, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com/inkingoutloud or on Ko-fi for a one-time donation. That's ko-fi. Uh, Patreon especially, you know, that's that is the engine that keeps this podcast going, pays for our software, you know, podcast hosting, website hosting, amazing episode artwork, and we have tons of great content on patreon including original fiction written by the two of us so check us out there as always i have been your host drew mccaffrey and with me is my co-host rob santos right here thanks for listening and we'll catch you next time
0: bye